Lit House is a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. In this episode, the Argentinian writer César Aira talks with his Norwegian translator Kristina Solum in a conversation that took place on September 14, 2016. Introduction by Gisle Selnes, Professor of Literature at the University of Bergen. Thank you. I am honored and a little bit embarrassed to be allowed to introduce the prolific literary phenomenon Cesar Aira on his first visit to Norway. Needless to say, it's impossible to do justice to the author of little less than 100 very diverse books in 10 minutes. Yet this seems to be my duty, so I'll do my best. No time to waste. Cesar Aira was born in Coronel Pringles, in the agrarian hinterland of Buenos Aires in 1949. In 1967, he moved to the capital, settling in the unremarkable Flores district, where he still lives and writes. Aira insists that the petit bourgeois routine of his everyday life is of great advantage to his artistic creativity. Nothing out of the ordinary ever happens, so he is totally dependent on his own imagination to weave the stuff his novels are made on. Most of Aida's books are literary artifacts that do not aspire to the effects of psychological realism. No profundity, no existential anxiety, only flat fictional figures that may be easily manipulated for literary purposes. If, we have, if they have to be borrowed from cartoons or pulp fiction, so be it. To a contemporary Norwegian audience familiarized with endless autobiographical novels as a key to literary success, this may sound strange. Yet Aira belongs to a different literary climate, by birth as well as by conviction. As an Argentinian, Jorge Luis Borges is probably Aira's single most important, indeed inevitable, precursor. Yet Aira places Borges in tandem with several representatives of the avant-garde and surrealist movements dating all the way back to Uruguayan-born Comte de Lautramont and his haunting Chants de Maldoror. An unlikely combination to be sure, yet this cross-fertilization has yielded Ira's peculiar literary style and the genre he himself refers to as Dadaist fairy tales. Thus, Ira's success, and sometimes his notoriety, derives, in part, I believe, from his flair for disjunctive influences, from his creative choice of precursors, and his strong misreading of their work. He makes them different. They make him new. Ira is decidedly post-boom even a post-post-boom writer. He does not subscribe to the values of so-called magic realism. He doesn't even care for the idea of a literary masterpiece, a notion that, according to him, belongs to the 19th century. The work of art per se is a thing of the past. What matters today is the concept behind it the procedures surrounding it, the script to which the work owes its existence. Cesarida's own procedure is the fuga hacia adelante, the flight forward. He produces one publishable page per day, banning any posterior correction whatsoever. Thus, every Aira book is quite literally an experiment 
conducted in order to see whether his idea for a novel is sustainable or not. Sometimes the improvised plot works an unheard of magic. Other times one has the feeling, to quote one of Ida's critics, of watching a person stuck under a fence trying to squeeze his way to the other side. Yet interestingly enough, the latter scenario is no less fascinating than the former. And there's a lot to be learned from observing a narrative gone awry in an Iranesque style. Aira's Fuga Hacia Adelante thus explains not only the considerable number of books with his name on the spine, it takes him about 100 days to write a novel, which allows for three to four titles per year at best, but also the weird ending of many of them. Frequently, Ira has to mobilize the most far-fetched inventions in order to get his twisted plotline to its final destination. The first of Ida's novels to be published in Norway was an episode in the life of a landscape painter, issued in 2010 and followed the year after by How I Became a Nun. These are probably the most celebrated of Ida's narratives, yet they are maybe not as representative of his oeuvre as one might think. An episode in the life of a landscape painter is unique in being the only Ida novel based on well-documented historical events. It contains hardly any abstruse elements at all. Indeed, it reads almost like a normal contemporary novel with a nice deconstruction of some of the foundational scenarios of Argentinian literature. How I became a nun features Cesar Aira in drag. It tells the tragic story of a little girl by that name who finally drowns in a tub of strawberry ice cream, a scene that is actually and paradoxically narrated by Cesar Aira herself. What sets this novel off against the bulk of Aira's work is not only the fact that many of its episodes touch on the autobiographical. Also, its writing is less improvised, the scenes more carefully crafted in advance than is normally the case in an Aira novel. This month's publication of three novels in one volume gives us another side of Cesar Aira, perhaps more representative of his oeuvre at large, the pink dress, ghosts and festivals. In the first of these three, we return to the Argentinian Pampa, where we follow the vagaries of the quasi-magical red-pink dress referred to in the title, weaving its way through the different strata of pre-modern Argentinian society. Cesar Aida's ghosts from the second novel are the exact opposite of what ghosts usually are in so-called ghost stories. They live on a modern construction site, not in an old castle. They are visible in broad daylight, not only by night, etc. The underlying question, however, is the following. How much is a living human being willing to sacrifice for the once-in-a-lifetime experience of joining the ghost's spectacular New Year's Eve party? What if it turns out that the price you have to pay is that you yourself must be dead? In the last of the three novels, Festival, we follow a renowned director of highbrow art movies who brings his 90-year-old mother to a hectic festival celebrating his own oeuvre. Despite appearances, the story is not simply a willful humoresque. It contains more, or I sometimes think to myself perhaps less than meets the eye. A certain resigned heroism an embedded 
poetics of narrative, and as if to neutralize its slapstick tendencies, festival ends with an almost lyrical revelation, which, for an Ira novel, is a bit of a surprise, to say the least. Before concluding, I would like to draw attention to the essayistic qualities of Ira's writing. Not only has he produced a series of illuminating longer essays on the poetry of Alejandra Pizarnik, on the limericks of Edward Lear, on the French-Argentinian cartoonist and writer Coppi, on contemporary art. Also in his novels, Aira frequently leaves the plotline in order to pursue the theoretical implications of the narrated events, to elaborate on the metaphysics of time, on the relation between the actual and the virtual, etc., as if an undercurrent of poetic reflection actually constitutes the primus motor of his literary universe. And in these passages, felicitous aphorisms abound. To quote just one from Fragmento de un Diario en los Alpes, Fragments from a Diary in the Alps. Art is the activity through which the world may be reconstructed when the world has disappeared. A brief anecdote to end my talk. This summer I had my first real-life experience that the world is about to yield to Cesar Aira's literary universe. As you may remember, during the Euro 2016 final, the game, soccer game, was interrupted by a huge swarm of insects. Moths, attracted by the immense spotlights used to illuminate the pitch. Viral photos of the dramatic moment when an injured Cristiano Ronaldo had to be substituted showed one of these intruding insects posing seemingly innocently on Ronaldo's right eyebrow. Faced with such a scenario, any true reader of Aira's oeuvre would immediately suspect the workings of some intergalactic monster plot designed by an evil soccer spirit, if not a colony of messy clones remote controlling an army of mechanical moths from some abandoned toy factory on the Argentinian Pampa. I take this episode and my spontaneous reaction to it as proof that Cesar Aira's fiction has actually changed the way we, some of us at least, perceive the world. My time is up, and it's a great pleasure to yield the floor to El Milagroso, Dr. Aira, in conversation with Cristina Sulub. Thank you again. Well, thank you very much, and uh, this introduction was so complete that I feel... <laughs> now we have avoid. nothing to say. Yes, I have nothing more to say. Stole all my points. <laughs> it was a little exaggerated in the praise, but thank you very much. I also want to thank you, Cesar Aira, for coming to Norway. Um, uh, I know that it's been said already a few times, but we've been wishing for you to come to Norway for such a long time. Well, I know the House of Literature has to. Um, Cesar Aira, you're one of those authors that one reads with the feeling that one is reading something genuine, something uh, that one has never read before. And you're also an extremely prolific writer, as Gisle Selnes has said. I think you've written 80 to 90 Yes, I novels. hate the word prolific. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yes. A friend told me that I should bring a, a 
pistol to this, and the first one that said the word prolific, I killed him. <laughs> because, uh, yes, my books are, are many, but the pages are not so many, because I have published books of 30 pages, of 20 pages, of nine pages, and these are no, no books, are plaquettes, but they figure in the bibliography and the people count and say, oh, 100, but 100, no. All my complete works will enter in three novels of Stephen King. <laughs> <laughs> in any case, all those uh, different, uh, I have not read all the different stories, but I, um, w whenever I read a new one, um, I get the impression that I, I never read the same story again. Yes. Because there is always a different world and different characters, although maybe there are some common themes, but... Yes, the, this may come from insatisfaction. I never wrote something that I found really well done. And so I say... I have to I have to do something different to see if I come to to something really good but yes I the only books of mine that I feel rather satisfied are the most how can I say the most literary one the, the ones that the only merit that they have is the literary met, merit, not the sentimental or the etc. <clears throat> and the ones that looks more like a fairy tale that I that the ones that are just the pure fable, the pure history. The, yes. Those are the most that you appreciate the most. Yes. 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 In the introduction, the, the professor told about a, a definition that I have done of my books as Dadaist fairy tales, but now I have one better. They are literary toys for adults. <laughs> yes. Toys, because the idea is the playfulness, the pleasure of reading and the pleasure of mirrored by the pleasure of reading. And they are literary. How, how do you get the ideas for so many different stories? Well, I need first an idea that is enough bizarre, enough paradoxical, enough, uh, I don't know. For example, I think, uh, what can I say, uh, a staircase that when you mount, you descend. How can that be? So this kind of paradoxical things May the the first the, the first moment mm -hmm. to begin. And then I go. Uh, how can I say? Desarrollo this idea. You I develop the idea. Develop this idea. But this idea is completely developed in five or six or ten pages, and then I need something more. Yeah. And this something more to go on must be something of myself, something personal. So I need these two things, the irrational logic, the paradoxical, and the personal. And there must be an equilibrium, no, not so much of the paradox because 
that would be something like a crossword, something without human interest. But not so much human interest because that will go to the sentimental, to the pathetic, to the autobiographic. So it must be the two things. In balance. In balance, yes. I have, when I speak in English, I have a tendency to use the Latin word. If I have balance and equilibrium. Equilibrium. <laughs> yes. When I have wet and humidity, I use humidity. <laughs> Norwegians <laughs> tend to do the opposite. <laughs> yes. Um, um, and I was thinking also about the, the writing. But, uh, oh, when I was in, in New York in the broadcast, in the radio, I said this thing of humidity and wet, and the man of the radio said, yes, but when you are in the shower, you have not humidity, you have wet. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there is a difference between the Germanic and the Latinic. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm very curious about asking uh, you about this way that you have of writing that Gisle Selnes also mentioned. It's very famous, this flight forward. Fuga, yes. Is it true that you always write in this exact same yes. procedure? And could you describe it? Well, yes. But I think there are two kinds of writers, well, there are millions of kinds of writers, but two principal kinds in the technique of, of reading novels, for example, is that there are some ones that let everything flow quickly, fast, and then make the work that they really like that this polishing, correcting. And there are the other, like me, the other kind that we wrote, we write as if we will die tonight. So <laughs> the best we can. So I go very lento. Slowly. Very slow, thinking every word, every sentence. And I love this especially because of the written, of the work of written. Do you write by hand? Yes. I am a militant of the pen. <laughs> and I have a huge collection of Mont Blancs. Yeah, you always. <laughs> I've heard that you always write with Mont Blanc, and on paper that is the same as uh, the yes, one that's the, the uh, Argentinian. No, I, I don't no. use it anymore. Okay. There Tesla was a paper. Was on. Once I I knew that some notebooks were made with a paper of the same fabricant of the paper that was used for the. The money, the, the, money. Notes. Yes, yeah, the, the notes. That was uh, a big stimulus for me. <laughs> <laughs> but I, yes, I like this work, this slow work of reading by hand and feel the nerves that go from the hand to the brain and to the, from the brain to the hand and this work. And I, cannot understand this 99% of the writers who write in the computer. Well, everyone does it. <laughs> yes, I go very... I never write more than one page a day, or less than one page. And so I am not so prolific. One page a day. <laughs> it game gives. At the most, 300 pages uh, a year. My books are short. Never pass of 100 pages, 120 pages. So to publish three books a year is not so. To be prolific, you don't have to write much. You have to write well. And that's the prolificity of the thing. Because literature is a qualitative activity, not a quantitative 
So, these last years, the only thing of that the critics say of my books are not that are good, but that they are many. <laughs> and so well. I decided not to publish more for a number of years. Now I write for myself. Well, here in Norway, <laughs> unfortunately, uh, yes, you there, are, there are not uh, so yes. many Cesar Aida books yet. So yes. <laughs> we're not blessed with that many books. Um, I, also, I also have the impression that you don't self-revise that. Well, yes, written so slow, thinking so much, every word, there is not so much to, to revise, to correct, because I did it the best I can. What can I do, transform myself in Borges and make it better? No, it's impossible. So, I, yes. This thing of the correction is like making enter a ghost that will make it better, will, will be a Kafka who came from the, the sky to... No, no one writes as one can write. And one of my favorite authors is Stendhal, this uh, elegant... Uh, Descuido. Um, <laughs> um, carefreeness. Yes. The, what the Italians call sprezzatura. The, uh, nonchalance. Nonchalance. <laughs> yes, I love this. Yes. Literature has not so much importance. It's not a nuclear plant. <laughs> so, <laughs> if it is not so well, well, what, what is the importance? Now, I will stick a little bit more to this idea of the flight forward, your, the, your way of writing. Um, I'm also under the impression that a part of the philosophy is that you have to correct me if this is wrongly represented, but once you've written one thing, it's like the card is played. So what comes afterwards, you have to adjust to what was already written. No, not so much. Not so much. No, but there is a thing I discovered once, and it's a literary toy for me, that um, when you write a novel, you can have a, a character. That, uh, this thing that uh, he loves, he hates, he goes, he comes. And in the last pages, you can say he was a midget. And so changed all, everything, no? <laughs> yes, I did it the first time in one of my of my novels that one of the protagonists was a woman, an old woman, and it was a little... I didn't like very much what I was doing. So in one of the last pages I thought that she was blind. <laughs> so everything changed. And this is an advantage of literature, of reading on the cinema. Because in the cinema, if he's a midget, mm. he's a midget from the from the start. Mm. Yes, this retrospective comprehension of what has happened. Yes, it's a trick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, as uh, as we've already heard. <laughs> I had planned this. <laughs> um, you also have um, very different um, literary influences. Gisle mentions uh, French symbolism, uh, Lautréamont, and yes. uh, Borges, yes. and uh, the classics. And at the same time, at the same time, at least in your books, we find very many references to popular literature. Yes. Um, cartoons, or, or, mm. and the, yeah, copy was already mentioned, um, but also a, a lot of characters looking at soap operas. 
Um, can you tell us a little bit about what you read yes, and how it I influences? Don't know. Well, I'm very <laughs> high bro and low bro, but nothing of middle bro. Nothing in between. Yes. Yes, I love. Of course, my reading, my serious reading is Shakespeare, Kafka. Yes, I go on. I read more than read now. But also, I don't know, Alf. You know Alf? Yeah. <laughs> yes, I love Alf and he has inspired me. Many of what I have written and these cartoons, bizarre of Remans, Timpy, and uh, yeah, Superman, the little Lulu. <laughs> yes, I don't know. And uh, novelas policiales. Yeah, that's... Detective novels. The crime novels, yeah. Yes, these are my favorite. Well, in this, uh, we were talking about uh, an, a speech I have to give in Berlin. And uh, I did what I could. Festivals, yeah. But the only rather intelligent idea that I put in this speech was this, that we serious readers we live all our life with the Damocles sword on our heads of the re-reading, because serious literature is infected by the re-reading. All the classics you have to, even if you don't re-read literally, they are contaminados, contaminated. contaminated by the idea of the re-reading. So, when we come to certain age in our reading life, we go to the detective novel. That is, by essence, the novel that you don't re-read, because you already know who killed the, the victim, no? <laughs> So this is, for so many serious readers of classics that in his all years pass to the detective novel, I think this is the, the idea, no? To liberate oneself of the re-reading thing. To liberate yourself from the re-reading. <laughs> Um, I read all the time the, the good old detective novels of the golden age of the 40s and 30s in England. Marjorie Allingham, Edmund Crispin, John Dixon Carr, Dorothy Sayers. But now I am trapped infected by Lee Child. I don't know if you know Lee Child. He's a genius. <laughs> yes. I don't read nothing but Lee Child. <laughs> yes, in these travels in the plane so long because we live there in the end of the world. So these 13 hours in the plane, uh, 500 pages of the child is perfect. <laughs> but I read one, I read two. And so I said, no, 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 I have to stop. And I bought, and I began to reread the Walter Benjamin book. But I go on reading Lee Child. <laughs> <laughs> and you use this in your writing? Then? Do you use this, these readings in your writing a lot? No. no, no, because the detective novel is just the opposite of what I do, no? Detective novel is not improvised. You have to have a plot mm -hmm. complete before 
No, I never think in advance what I was going to write because then it would be reduction, bureaucratic reduction of something already thought. No. Ah, nothing. <laughs> no. But did you ever uh, think of writing something longer? Did you try to write something longer? No. 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 100 pages is the longest I go. Yes. The only thing maybe longer is, is doing a series of of little novels with the same characters. I tried once of to to do this and I invented a a superhero that was called Barba Verde, Green Bird. <laughs> Because my children always insisted that I have a green bird. I don't know why. <laughs> well, I invented this. And I wrote four little novels under the general title of Las Aventuras de Barba Verde, the Barba Verde Adventures. And I thought, and I give them to a Spanish publisher. And I suggested that he publish one every six months. So when he came to the fourth, I have already have, have written two more. And so I have my life solution. <laughs> <laughs> But he, uh, like every publisher, want big books. So he made a four in one volume, and I lost interest. <laughs> Oh. Yes. Uh, talking about publishers, um, you always, you also publish with very different publishers. Sometimes with very big publishers, sometimes very small. Yeah. I think I counted, <laughs> I counted, thirty different publishers on your Wikipedia yes. page. Why is this? Yes, I don't know. First, there was. Well, yes, a publisher, another publisher. I wanted, uh, I saw, for example, the Anagrama publishers in in Barcelona. They have beautiful coverturas, tapas. Covers? Yes, and I wanted a book in Anagrama. <laughs> uh, in Tusquets, also a Catalonian Uh, they have a beautiful black books. I want so I give it one. And but then I lost interest in this, and I have well two big publishers, the Random House and the Planeta, and a myriad of little. Because I did a. Um, I. I never thought of having an agent. An agent. Representative. Because I thought this the most snobbish thing. <laughs> But uh, when they began to translate me, they began in French and German too, in Austria and in Italy. And they sent me contracts that I signed without reading. And then I discovered that this contract has some clauses very <laughs> compromising for me. Uh, so, well, appeared an agent, a German <laughs> agent, a German very active, and uh, that went to Buenos Aires. And we made an agreement that he, for he was the world, and for me, Argentina. I don't meddle in the world, he don't meddle in Argentina. <laughs> so, in Argentina it's all free. In I know, yes, I gave, give myself, give my books to little, oh. uh, independent publishers, friends, mm -hmm. and it's all free. And so I have the, be the best of two worlds. In Argentina, I am the gentleman writer. 
Alright, because not mercenary. And from the world come the money. <laughs> but it makes some of your books difficult to some of the, especially some of the small short books. Yes. That were yes. published almost on paper by independent yes, publishers. Uh, it's difficult one for of us the reasons that I like this independent publishers that they publish anything I give them. If I give them a book of 20 pages, they make a book of 20 pages, and I'm very happy to make a book of 20 pages. And then, well, these books go to translation, and they make compilations, and I don't know nothing of this. I am not interested. I am very happy that uh, in this Norwegian new book they included festival because it's one of the less insatisfactory books for me. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, sh should we maybe read something from one of the books? Um, I was thinking initially at, of saying something about each book, but it was actually covered in the introduction. <laughs> Um, there, I mean, the new Norwegian book that's been published by Jyllendal now. It's the first uh, novel, it's called The Pink Dress, and it's basically a story uh, where the protagonist, in a way, is the pink dress. <laughs> and we follow the dress, the, yes. the different owners of the dress. Through I don't remember. It, it even, it even leads to a kind of civil war between the uh, Indians and the non-Indians in, in Argentina, I assume. Um, and in, um, in the second one, it's called Ghosts, and we will read a little bit from Ghosts now. And uh, this is the one that's taking place at a construction site where a family is living, and, um, but there are also ghosts living there. And as Gisela mentioned, these are not the kind of ghosts that... Th they don't have the prototypic um, characteristic traits of goats that we usually conventionally see. Um, and there is a girl who is 15 years old who is in this age in which everybody is talking about men and love and pregnancies and that kinds of things. And, but she doesn't really go out very much, but one day she's invited to a party with the ghosts. Um, and the third one, it's something completely different. It's uh, called Festival. And uh, this is about a science fiction film director yes. who shows up with his yes. mother, who is this crazy character with a crocodile bag and a wig and always in a grumpy mood. And she makes life terrible for... <laughs> Everyone at the festival. Yes. <laughs> you know, uh, this uh, legend of the prolific writer that I am, when I, when happens something in my life, they say, now you, you're going to write a novel about this. And when I was a jury in a film festival, everybody was saying, what experience now you you write a novel about the the festival that is absurd because we writers don't don't go to to our house uh, to write what happened but this time yes i I did what they think what they wanted. I wrote the novel <laughs> on a festival. And I invented this Antonioni of the outer space. <laughs> oh, yes. And I put the, all the characteristics of my mother. In the, in the mother. But the, you should read the description. <laughs> the idea, I said before that I need a queer idea to begin. And the idea here was, um, in these uh, movies, maybe you have seen that there is a plague or an attack of uh, extraterrestrials and all the humanity die, except 
for example, who has mustache. There's the, some things, some little things that give immunity. Huh? And so I thought uh, maybe comes a catastrophe, uh, apocalyptic, and the only people who survive is that people that has his mother near. <laughs> no? <laughs> so when they invite this, uh, well, that is the theory of this Antonioni of the outer space, this film director that is German or... Belgian, Belgian yeah. Belgian. 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 Yes. Uh, when they invite him to this uh, festival that happens in a, in a kind of Buenos Aires, surrounded by mountains, uh, he goes with his mother in case there is a <laughs> an, an alien invasion. <laughs> if <he laughs> yes, his mother, yes. Even if his mother is the most insupportable <laughs> character in the world. And she hates being there. And <laughs> yes, of course. He hates having her there. Yeah. <laughs> um, should we read a little bit from uh, Ghosts? You can read in, in Spanish and I will read afterwards in, uh, in Norwegian. And after that we will open for some questions. So if you want to think of some questions that you might have. Yes, who begins? You begin. Um, it's marked with green. Okay. <laughs> well, it's the... You have to remember to just add the ghosts. Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, thank you again, because you understood exactly what the... Everything in the life you have to pay, but how much? If it's if you have to pay with your own life, which is the price that merits some sacrifice? This. Well, I read in Spanish. Subió por la escalera y volvió al contrafrente, donde presentía que se reunían en mayor cantidad. En efecto, un grupo grande de fantasmas la esperaba, o parecía esperarla junto al borde, pero del lado del aire, bañados en la última luz sobre el fondo del aire intenso del fin del día. Dentro de ese aire de visibilidad oscura la esperaban a ella, porque uno de ellos pronunció su nombre. ¿Qué? preguntó la patria deteniéndose a unos tres metros. ¿No querrías asistir a nuestra fiesta esta noche? Si me invitan, eso estamos haciendo. Un silencio. La patria trataba de entender lo que le habían dicho. Al fin preguntó, ¿por qué a mí? Era una fatalidad que preguntara eso. No lo respondieron. Bien pensado, no podían hacerlo. Lo dejaron a su criterio. Hubo un silencio que se prolongó algo más que el otro. Y lo estoy pensando. Ah, parecía haber una cierta ironía en los fantasmas. En ese momento retrocedieron sin hacer ningún movimiento, otra vez como visiones afectadas por un diferencial de distancias. Pero retrocedieron de todos modos y el espectáculo que le brindaron entonces a la ingenua exploradora no pudo ser más extraordinario. Una especie de hélice de luz los bañó como al descuido, los envolvió en un amarillo invisible. El polvillo se había vuelto apenas una insinuación, una pelusa. La patria sintió que se le apretaba el corazón ante esos hombres. De hecho, fue como si viera hombres por primera vez. «Deténgase», gritaba su alma. «No se vayan nunca». Quería verlos así por toda la eternidad, aunque la eternidad durase un instante, y sobre todo si duraba un instante. No concebía la eternidad de otra forma. Ven, eternidad, ven y sé el instante de mi vida, exclamaba para sí misma. Claro que tendrás que estar muerta, dijo uno de ellos. Eso no tiene ninguna importancia, respondió de inmediato, apasionadamente. Su pasión quería decir otra cosa, 
que lo que decían sus palabras, otra cosa que no sabía qué era, pero también significaba exactamente lo que había dicho. Not so bad. No. And now I will read it in translation. And this translation was done by Christian Rugsta. I don't know if he's here today. Maybe. Maybe he's here. It's, um, um, yeah, I think it's a very nice translation. I have to say, I really enjoyed reading it. Um, hun gick upp till nästa etage och bort till baksidan av byggningen, var hon förnämmet att spökelserna hade samlat sig i ett enda större antal. Och ganska riktig. En stor flock väntet på henne. Eller skyntes och vänte på henne. Borte vid kanten. I luften utanför badet i dagens sista solstråler. Inne i luften av mörk synlighet väntet de på henne. För ett av dem sa namnet hennes. Vad spurte Patrie och stanse tre meter undan dem. Har du kyllest att vara med på festen vår? Visst är inviterar mig så. Det gör vi. Tausett. Patrie försökte att förstå vad de hade sagt till henne. Till slut spurte hon. Varför mig? Det var ett meningslöst spörsmål. De svarte inte. Det kunde de heller inte göra. De överlåt till henne att finna ut av det själv. Stillheten var det längre än förra gång. Nå? Jag tänker på det. Åh. Det var som om spökelserna hade intat en ironisk hållning. Nå trakk de sig tillbaka utan att röra sig på ny som syner som ändrat sig uteluckande vid avståndsskillnader. Uansett trakk de sig tillbaka. Och det skudde i bö den naiva uppdagersken var rätt och slett fabelaktig. Det var som om en spiral av lys inhyllet dem i en usynlig gul glans. Kalkstöve var nå bara en antydning, ett lag av dun. Syna av disse männene fick det sig att lå knyta sig i brystet på Patri. Det var som om en så män för första gång. Stans skrek själen hennes där må inte dra deras väg. Hon ville se dem slik i all evighet, även om evigheten bara var ett ögonblick. Och framför allt, visst den varte ett ögonblick. Hon kunde inte föreställa sig evigheten på en annan måte. Kom evighet, kom och var mitt livs ögonblick utbrötten för sig själv. Du är självfölgelig nöt till att vara död, sa ett av dem. Det betyder ingenting, svarte hon strax uppglöd. Känslorna hennes ville se si något annat än orden hennes. Något annat som en inte visste vad var. Men det betyder också akkurat det hon hade sagt. So this is the moment in which the um, the girl is invited to the party with the uh, ghosts, and um, she's told that she has to be dead if she wants to go to the party. Um, and it's this this. Um, Book Ghost has a lot of this surreal that your books often have. The the characters don't react at all, really, I think, to the ghosts. No. They're surprised by completely different things. Like, for example, they're living in a construction site where they're um, making houses for rich people. And the main characters are like, oh, can you believe that they're having a swimming pool? No, you could, well, you have to see it with your own eyes if you want to believe it. And then, but there are ghosts around them and they don't question them at all, which I think is um, it's a fantastic way of doing it. Well, thank you. Yes. <laughs> I don't know. When people like a book of mine, I begin to suspect that it is not so good. <laughs> but yes I don't, I don't know one of the I did these workers the family that lives they are Chileans because I have been in Chile in Chile for the first time I had one of my first publishers was a 
Chileans, a Chilean couple. It was Javier, I forgot the name. Yes, it was a couple of Chileans of very high society Chilean. And this was the, the woman, uh, editor, publisher, I mean, uh, was the first Chilean I knew. And uh, I was habituated to listen to this Chilean accent of this woman, this very aristocratic woman. And when I went to Chile for the first time, I saw that very humble people speak exactly like this woman. Chile is one of the only countries in the world that all the social classes speak with the with the same accent. accent. Oh. Yes. Interesting. So, I wanted to, to make a, an homage to the Chilean's accent with these Chilean people. And now when I read this, this fragment, I remembered that all the discussions between the women of this family are about how to find un hombre de verdad. Yeah, and a, a Chilean true, man. <laughs> a true man, a real man. That is the most rare and exceptional thing in the world. And, uh, and that, so are the ghosts that are not real, but I don't know what it is. But yes, the idea, I think, is there. Should when I remember my old books, I have to think who who write these, who wrote these, what did he mean to do? Yes. If we want to have time for some questions, I think we should uh, open the floor now. Um, I see somebody in the corner. <laughs> Just wait for the microphone. Hello. In 1997, you wrote in the magazine El Porteño that uh, Juan José Sáenz uh, broke the mold of the Latin American writers because uh, after writing each book, he will come up with a better book one. So, I suppose you were being ironical towards Sáenz, but I wonder uh, if you how do you how do you feel yourself about what you said about him, and uh, if you believe that there is a, a mold for Latin American writers of what is expected for them to provide, literally? Oh, I don't... It's my universal answer. I don't know. <laughs> uh, no, no, I believe in the, in the difference in the individuality of writers. So, taking models, all the things. No. And even Sire was a good friend for the time. He was a, a good writer, but he was very jealous. And when I wrote this article, uh, he said that it was the best thing uh, written uh, on him. He make a great friend with me in Paris, and but when I began to have readers, so I didn't like that at all. For <laughs> but he was a, a good friend. And no, I, I don't know. I don't know even if Latin American is a word that signifies something, because there are so many differences uh, between our countries. The history. How much particular do you 
you qualified him as uh, Latin American, when you were writing in a semi-underworld magazine in Buenos Aires, it was part of an irony view towards him. Why you chose to call him a Latin American writer instead of an African writer when you were writing for an advertised public in a semi-underground magazine? I wrote about a Latin American. I don't understand. Yes. Ah, sí, dije eso. I, I don't remember, no. Sí. I don't know, no. No, El Porteño was not an underground magazine. And, uh, yes, I wrote, because there was nothing about uh, the whole work of 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 sire at the, at this moment so i wanted to do a, a review of all his work and uh, i did it and i exaggerated a bit about the uh, master but i didn't remember that i uh, qualified him of latin american well he's latin american he's argentine but Thank you, and excuse me for mentioning somebody else, but you were so very much in love with the writer with a strange name that we're so curious to to know who, who was he. You, you in the plane, you were fascinated by one special writer, author, Lee, Lee Child. Child. Yes, Lee Child. Thank you. Excuse me for not talking about your work. Jack Reacher. <laughs> Yes, but I know. No lo estoy recomendando especialmente. I just wanted to ask you about the notion of literarity because you were saying very early when you were talking, you were saying that your novels were literary toys for adults, and then you were kind of stressing the point that they were literary. And I'm just curious, what, what does literary mean to you? Well, this means that uh, when you read uh, these bestsellers novels, Dan Brown, you don't need to have a literary formation, uh, formation, education. Education, Liter training, yeah. Well, a literary training, no? One anecdote I told once, and it's not so appropriate to 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 tell to repeat, but I repeated it. Uh, once I was walking in my neighborhood in Flores, and came a man that I didn't know, and he. When he passed, he said, hello, Ida. And I looked at him, asking me who, who is, where I, I have known him. And he said, you, you don't know me. I am a reader, a humble reader. And then I begin to think, he's not so humble if he read me. He's luxury reader. Humble reader is a reader of Tom Brown or the reader of these bestsellers. But to read to me, even if I am not a great writer, I am not a Kafka, but I am literary. So you have to have made all a way, a journey through literature to appreciate what I do. No? That is the literary thing of the literary toys, I think. Are there any questions? Sorry, you have one more? Yeah. 
prefer Johnny Carter over Sister Taylor, or what's your opinion Microphone, yes. Can you repeat it in the microphone? Which one is of your best preference, Johnny Carter or Cecil Taylor? No, Cecil Taylor, of course. No doubt. Yes. Yes, I love Cecil Taylor from almost my childhood because of my snobbish character. When I listened for the first time this piano, crazy, this uh, storm of notes, I, I found this is my thing. And yes, I have listened to him all my life, and last year I have the honor of kiss his hand. Yes, it was a great moment of my life. My other hero, Marcel Duchamp, is dead, so I cannot know him. But Cecil, yes. <laughs> then I think we have to round off if there are no further questions. So thank you so much. Well, thank you. It has been a pleasant uh, conversation. Well, thank you very much. You have been listening to Lit House, the English-language podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, Litteraturhuset. Music by Apotek.